0: Hello and welcome back to the Boar Film Podcast. This is the episode on Arthouse Film. I'm your host, as usual, Frank Evans, the editor of the Boar Film section. And today I'm joined by Sam Atkinson. Hi Sam, how are you? Hello, I'm Sam
1: Atkinson. I'm here. This is very exciting. This is the episode on Art House Cinema. What's the what's the tone of this usually like? What what I, I know you and Nick did a well, me, Nick and Frank, for those who don't know, I don't know how you couldn't know this, but we used to have a radio show together. And we talk about all sorts. What's the? This is a classy episode, right?
0: Well, usually we're really, really slumming it on this show. It's it's nothing but crude, <laughs> vulgar, farce. This true. is the sophisticated one. I'm dressed in a full tux. I'm, I've got a Dom Pérignon champagne glass in my hand,
1: and uh, <laughs> it's
0: nothing but sophistication from here on out.
1: That's that, that's true. If there was a visual aspect to this podcast, good lord, it'd be a spectacle. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Well, I thought I'd ask you uh, a question to start with, but first a statement. Wikipedia, the greatest source of authority in the Western world, and in fact all of the world, states, an art film is typically an independent film aimed at a niche market rather than a mass market audience. It is intended to be a serious artistic work, often experimental and not designed for mass appeal made primarily for aesthetic reasons rather than commercial profit and contains unconventional or highly symbolic content. What do you think of that definition? Ooh, that's heavy. That's
1: a that's a heavy first question. I don't know. See, this is, what was that line about the aesthetic and the consumption and the, what was that line? It said
0: it's made primarily for aesthetic reasons rather than commercial profit.
1: I don't know. This is, I've had to read some of the, situationist stuff for my dissertation see this is classy if this is a classy episode i'm getting classy about my references um but i'm getting no so i've had to i've had to i've had to read some of their stuff for uh for my dissertation and i feel like one of the main uh things holding back the art house or holding back like art cinema is that it feels like it has to be like so opposed to the commercial all the time it's like Oh no, no 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 this was in this was in VU cinemas this was this was widely distributed this can't be this can't be art like so much of these these old avant garde movements they were like man, they're trying to create a sort of outside to you know it's like the commercial and there's the outside. but I feel like you know that might have been true in maybe the sixties or was it even true back then? Who knows, but right now that's not true at all. I feel like all the new and exciting stuff is happening sort of. Through the commercial, that's the first thing I've taken away from it. But there's probably more. You know, that was a that was a that was a hefty that was a that was a hefty bunch of words.
0: Well, I I agree that it's unnecessarily restrictive as a definition. It's it's yeah. a Wikipedia definition, so it's kind of trash just based on the fact that it's a Wikipedia definition. <laughs> but true. if you if you describe an art house film or an art film as being made primarily for aesthetic reasons. I mean, for example, like a Bergman film is probably like a peak example of an art film for most people. That's not made primarily for aesthetic reasons. What do you mean by that? As in, it's not for the look. It's not just for the look and the tone. It's got a message. I just watched Winter Light uh, just Mm -hmm. before I came to see this. That's a very beautiful film. It's aesthetically gorgeous, but it's about faith. It's a film about the existence of God. It's an existentialist film. I think you can Mm -hmm. have aesthetic components, but to say that an art film is made primarily for aesthetic reasons, Mm. juxtaposing that against commercial profit, I mean, a lot of art films aren't necessarily made for commercial profit, but then again, I have a problem with that definition Mm -hmm. because a lot of art films, of films that we now recognize as art films, were older films that at their time were made for a mass audience Mm. and were made with a massive budget. Like a key example there. Would be something like *La Regle de Jeu* by Jean Renoir. Mm-hmm. Which oh, of
1: the,
0: <laughs> well, Exactly. Well, I, I didn't know what. You're, yes. Well, that's the thing. Most people probably wouldn't know what *La Regle de Jeu* is now mm-hmm. if you just mentioned it. Mm-hmm. But that was made in 1939 in France, and that was at that mm-hmm. point the most expensive French film ever made. This is the country that yes. basically invented cinema. In 1939, mm. it was the most expensive, and it's a completely uncompromising art film. It's not. Mm. It, it, and yet, it essentially it was kind of made in a sense for commercial profit. It was a big, expensive film made for wide release, and yet it has this very uncompromising moral aspect to it in terms of its politics. Mm-hmm. It's a, a criticism of what Renoir saw as a decadent de- uh, society heading headfirst into confrontation with fascism and not being prepared to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Now, here's an art film that's not primarily primarily for aesthetic reasons whatsoever. It's a political film. Com- yeah. the question of commercial profit, it was it was a mass-marketed film with a huge budget, so I, I think it's but a even, poor definition. Yeah. It's it's a poor
1: definition, in my opinion. That's an interesting sort of description of it. Again, I'm thinking back to some of the stuff I've I've been reading, like some of the stuff by, and this is my English pronunciation of this, Guy de Bois, but I feel like if you're French, he's probably Guy de Bois, or something like that. But he has an article about the the French New Wave, and if you think about the like everywhere, depending on how you're sort of defining aesthetic, uh, then this kind of massive, great aesthetic leap forwards was the French New Wave. And then, you know, off the back of that, you get New Hollywood doing the same thing. But the, what he was saying about this, though, so, which is utterly sort of fascinating, and I spend a good portion of my dissertation kind of refuting this, is where he's like, the French New Wave is bad. <laughs> and the reason that he says, he uses the, have you seen Hiroshima and Monomore? No, I haven't. Oh my, you'd love it. It's 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 stunning. But the, he 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 essentially dunks on this film. And what he's saying about this is, he says it's like the James Joyce of cinema, where he's like, I mean, firstly, I think he's defining it wrong. He's he he's kind of saying that this film doesn't have anything going on politically. It doesn't really have much of a message there, which I think is complete nonsense. I don't know how he even came to that conclusion. But what he's saying is like these. You know something like the French New Wave, where most of the advancement was just the surface aesthetic. Like he's saying no, this is not a worthwhile experiment because it's not actually telling us about like the material world. And I think that's kind of absolute nonsense. But it's kind of interesting because you know how much can you even separate the aesthetic and the political, like? I don't know, it's interesting. I think, like, again, I think the French New Wave to the New Hollywood comparison is, is kind of interesting there.
0: No, I, I I certainly agree with that. I think it was interesting yeah. what you were saying about the aesthetic of a film being political, and I like the fact that you mentioned mm. the French New Wave, because, mm. for example, a filmmaker like Godard, who constantly highlights editing techniques, or a filmmaker like René, you mentioned, Hiroshi mm. More, who constantly highlights editing, who makes his films subversive in the fact that they're they are very metatextual they're telling you how they're made whilst you're watching them now that mm-hmm. is aesthetic you're seeing a specific visual style that's very choppy and very avant-garde and very uh very much a contradiction of the classic hollywood form and yet that is yeah. making a statement because it's mm-hmm. making you question how films are made and especially yeah. if you look at I don't know just off the top of my head a film like breathless Yes, that film is primarily important because of its aesthetic, but its
1: aesthetic is making a point. Mm. Let's see with the stuff around. I think all the stuff in around May '68 is always pretty exciting. Like all the, the late '60s, early '70s brand of of this experimental. I, I I don't. I think it kind of goes beyond cinema, but even within cinema, like looking across movements, kind of like the the overall point. If you wanted to still new hollywood was a french new wave and some of the stuff that was like going on elsewhere uh like a lot of it is just about the means of producing like it's all kind of it's all about the production of these art forms and like in cinema is an interesting one because in cinema all these questions about how like all the thematic somatic level of them being like how are we making this um what are the means of productions that are leading to these films being created this all kind of happened at the same time As, like, when all these directors figured out that they could do absolutely crazy things with the surface aesthetics of these films. If you compare it to literature, it's it's interesting because literature kind of had its, like, French New Wave moment in the 1920s. Like, you know, if you're thinking of what's the literary equivalent of, you know, Hiroshima Namur, like Guy Dubois was saying, it's like James Joyce. It's like you're pushing these kind of down, you're pushing the art form down to its absolute sort of. limits, (laughs) Limits, <laughs> and you're trying to separate the 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 signified from the 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 signifiers as much as possible. You're just trying to, you know, go to the most abstract sort of level you can. What's interesting about 68, though, is like, oh no, what's interesting about how this works in literature, is you know, literature, all this happens in the 1920s, and then in the 70s, when you get people like you know Thomas Pynchon and Italo Calvino, it's like they're asking all these same questions that they're asking during the French New Wave. But what's, you know, the French New Wave and New Hollywood are interesting because they're kind of just fusing these together. But also, all the experimental film in the 70s is kind of like, even think of like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Like, you know, something which, you know, I don't know if you do, like, you can brand it as experimental, but it really isn't experimental in the fact that it has that sort of prestige behind it. But like, at the end of Holy Grail, like, It ends in the same way as a Holy Mountain, which I saw the other day, and it's great. But it's like all this has happened, but then just as a final sort of hurrah, they pull back the fourth wall and they're saying, ah, yes, this is a film and we've made it, and this is how we've made it. Um, So even these things, like even the thematic qualities, you can kind of put them back into being aesthetic because so many of these, like, because so many directors are just thinking the same thing at once, like, you know, it's weird how these are separated. Like, on the aesthetic, it's like you know aesthetic movements you, like you can group aesthetics very easily together you can very easily look at a film and be like ah oh, yes that is new Hollywood or that is film that is French New Wave and you can very easily do that just by looking at you know the editing or the the camera work or something like this then on a thematic level like these kind of things are always kind of put down to uh, the individual like talent behind it like I like the idea of Thinking of these thematic qualities as being like integrated into the aesthetic. In my mind, the thematic is the aesthetic. I'd be interested to hear what you take from this. I would certainly agree to an ex- to an
0: extent because ultimately film is visual. Mm. That's 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 what distinguishes film from everything else. That's what distinguishes film from radio or theatre or whatever. It's it's a recorded visual medium. And in that mm. sense, if you are innovating it whatsoever, you're innovating the visual aspect of it to some degree. And if mm. you're doing that, then your visual aesthetic will be linked with whatever you're trying to get across thematically. So I do agree. Mm. I suppose I do agree to that extent, yeah. It is interesting. When it, when it comes to art film, I was, I was reading an article the other day. I'm just going to load it up here to see what you think of this. All right, cool. The Guardian did a list a couple of years ago, of what they considered to be the, the top ten, very watch y the top yeah. ten art house films. Okay, interesting. And one of the films they listed was A Clockwork Orange. Interesting. Okay, now I think this goes back to the conversation we were having, uh, the, the topic we were talking about a little bit earlier, which is what is an art house film, or that kind of stuff. Yeah. A Clockwork Orange is this big, controversial, violent shocker it was called, uh, I believe, the film Shocker to End Them All when it came out in Britain. That's what the tabloids mm. ran with. Mm. Now, if a film came out today that had graphic violence in it, scenes of sexual violence, like in A Clockwork Orange, you wouldn't expect it to be some highly cerebral art film dealing with issues of free will and control in the state. You, you see what I mean? I do see what you mean, yeah. It's interesting that it's labelled an art film, and it's labelled an art film because it's Stanley Kubrick directing it. And mm. he chooses to, He chooses to make it very political, and he chooses to make it visually absolutely immaculate.
1: Mm.
0: Now, just before, perhaps we get onto that. Here's the list that the Guardian had of the top ten art films of all time. Keeping in mind, this was a list written in 2013. At number ten, at number ten, they have Pasolini's The Gospel According to Saint Matthew. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: At number nine, they have The White Ribbon, Michael Haneke. See, I was, gonna, I was about to mention him. Uh, interesting. At number eight, they have Fanny and Alexander Bergman. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Number seven, Days of Heaven, Terrence Malick. Mm-hmm. Number six, Clockwork Orange, as I said. Mm. Number five, now here's an
1: interesting one, Citizen Kane. Oh, <laughs> that's a, okay. But so, you can, so by art house film, they mean auteur
0: film. By arthouse film, really, they just mean films that critics really like. Yeah. <laughs> Number four, Tokyo Story. I, I, yeah. well, I love Tokyo Story. It's a wonderful film, but it's mm-hmm. it's an incredibly well-made uh, Japanese family drama film. I suppose if you're looking at the way Ozu directs it, it's very different to a lot of Western films in that there's very, very, very static camera. It's got a slow pace, and mm. he basically breaks the 180-degree rule of filmmaking. Instead of doing... A more typical style of representative conversation with both people visible, it's close-ups. It's alternating close-ups. Mm-hmm. Which is d- very different from how we see films, because it's very idiosyncratic to what Ozu was doing. But then does mm-hmm. that by itself make it an art film? I'm, I'm I'm struggling with this This Guardian list. Number three, they've got La Salante by Jean Vigo. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Number two, Mulholland Drive. Again, okay, fair enough. That kind of fits the criteria. Mm-hmm. And number one, Andrei Rublev by Tarkovsky.
1: Hmm. Seems, yeah, these are, what's weird about this is, like, I, I'm hearing what they're putting under the definition of art house, and it's almost just making me think that art house is a almost useless sort of term. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Like, I've, come yeah. the
0: same, I've come to the exact same conclusion uh, in terms of research yeah. this episode. Because, well, yeah. The, the definition, the parameters used for the definition are so broad that it basically means any film that critics really like. Like we had Dom on a couple of weeks ago and he said that Magic Mike XXL is a wonderful film that's underrated. If you wanted to, you can make an argument that's an art film and that you can be like, oh no, it's, this, it's a subversive, you know what I mean? It's this yeah. comment on America. In the same way that people look at like very pulpy films from America from the 50s and say, yeah. oh, these are classic art films, really. Yeah.
1: See, but I do do still think that the idea of the auteur, though, and, like, I think auteur is still a very useful sort of term to have, like, but I I suppose what would probably be interesting is how far, like, auteur is something that exists, like, within movies, like, within the films themselves that kind of comes out, or whether it's all just a question of marketing, whether it's, but then, you know, maybe you're watching, like, Let's say you're just at HMV and you're just buying a, you're just buying a film, just because you want to watch it and you have no real interest in any of these questions. And like you pick up like Mulholland Drive or like you know Inland Empire or something. <laughs> like I feel like you know watching those films, it won't just be a, it won't be that the authorness of it is like imposing you from outside. Like you're watching these films and you're confused. <laughs> like maybe just. Uh, or if you, if, maybe if you just on the level of talking about the actual films themselves, it's just how surreal, maybe auteur is just a word they use to describe, surrealness in cinema. <laughs> and the more surreal it is, the more auteur it is, there, therefore, the more arthouse it is.
0: That is an interesting point. And I, I wouldn't, mm. I think that you're, you are kind of onto something, but then, Mm-hmm. Then you get into this, is all semantics, I suppose, at the end of the day, if we're talking about art house films. Because if you look at the concept of the auteur as a director mm-hmm. that puts a really forceful stamp on a film, mm-hmm. then really you've got to call Quentin Tarantino an auteur. And oh, no, definitely, yeah. And you know, I don't like him, but he is. Are you, are you going to call Inglorious Bastards an art film at, at that point?
1: <laughs> well, I know a lot of people who probably would, like, I, I know a lot of people who probably call once upon a time in Hollywood, uh, an art film. But even, again, it exhibits, like, a lot of the same sort of qualities of it. It, like, it, but again, but it, I feel like the question is just, what is it that these films are doing differently? The, like, where does, like, where do you draw the line is really, I suppose, a question. Like, is that, what would you, is there anything you could, like, is Quentin Tarantino where you think maybe the line is? Do you think the line might be, like, so, so, if, if I was doing it, I think I would put, the line of auteur, like probably even further than that. But then, like, you know, there's an assumption that auteur and art house means, you know, good. Like, yeah. yeah Michael, Michael Bay is an auteur. And, like, you know, people, if you, I, I mean, I don't really know much about Michael Bay. Maybe I would like his films. Maybe I need a, I feel like if I rewatch Transformers, I'd get an awful lot out of it. But, like, he is, I'm like Zack Snyder. Like, Zack Snyder is, like, you know, very much an author but like I don't really know where you draw this distinction. But then also like it doesn't need to exist on the level of even like the individual. Like think of these uh Netflix documentaries. Like these the Netflix documentaries that are coming out at the minute, they've been coming out for the last few years. Like I hate them. <laughs> and like, you know why do you hate one, them? They're really sort of pretentious but not and like that's me saying that like (laughs) like (laughs) i think that they're they're just entirely sort of they're they're overblown they're under-researched but they're all very similar you know you can watch a netflix documentary series and immediately just as soon as you even see those opening titles feel like this is a netflix film so like you know altar is still even useful useful there then of course is, is it like does every film become an auteur film, depending on how you define auteur.
0: I was just gonna ask, what, can you give me a specific example of a Netflix documentary series that you're talking about?
1: Oh, have you seen The Disappearance of Madeleine McCann?
0: Is, is it that kind of thing
1: that you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's, it's atrocious. It's just, you know, the, the, the graphics are so glossy and it looks like they had a, a, a crazy high CGI budget, but it's just so boring. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can like and like it, it has like classic sort of American thing where there's a there's a lot it's very it's very serious like this like you know like a lot of these American documentaries like it has a very strong like subject and they're saying something and it's gonna be quite bold and cut and then the atmosphere changes but all the Netflix ones have a strong house style to them but I
0: hate it. <laughs> I think by bringing up these examples of Netflix documentaries, Michael Bay, Tarantino, Zack Snyder, what we're showing is when you're defining what auteur cinema is, there's always exceptions to the rule. It reminds me of um, the old post-structuralist argument. I saw this a while ago, which is that if you're going to categorize and define something in a structuralist way, if you're going to say, for example, this is the essence of what soup is, soup is a hot meal with liquid with you know containing vegetables or meat or whatever it might be there's always an exception because there's cold soup and then if you say oh it can be cold too well then is cereal soup there's always exceptions that kind of break down the idea of a category you can't ever be concrete with it and so i mm. suppose that's that's the same issue with art house cinema
1: with auteur do you think auteur is a like again what do you think the limits of auteur are do you think that would you define auteur in the same sort of way that i might where i'd be like it's a bit like it's just a sort of it's a it's a broad stroke that kind of can be used to describe any film, but you give it a sort of loose definition. But it's still a useful function to to use to describe. Like, how do you how do you describe it? I want to hear your thoughts.
0: I think it's a useful term, and I think it's specifically useful if you want to direct. If you beg your pardon, if you want to describe a director who has a very specific style that's recognizable. But mm-hmm. I, I recently heard William Friedkin talking about the idea of auteur theory and he completely rubbishes it, which is interesting because William Friedkin is exactly someone that I would describe as an auteur because he has such mm-hmm. a clear style. But what he says is every film you make is a collaboration. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's an article by Pauline kale very famously called Raising Cain, where yeah. she points out Citizen Kane. This is the ultimate example of auteur theory has, Orson Wells changing the history of cinema with this one film because he was such a genius. Mm. And yet it wouldn't have happened if uh, Greg Toland hadn't been the cinematographer. Mm. There was a very clear collaboration mm. between artists that made that possible. So I think the the idea of auteur theory itself can be problematized really, but it's it's a useful shorthand if you just want to say a director that has a very clear and
1: repeated visual style true i think it i think it's basically useless on the term on the side of production but then i suppose the description of production is a very difficult thing to do i think you know what michel foucault he has a you know this is the, this is a highbrow podcast we are getting highbrow about this he has a idea called author function which is a bit like author theory but it just exists on the level of how these texts are actually sort of consumed um so he's saying that author function is kind of like you know it's classic post structuralism where it's like, it's not just looking at like how these things interrelate. It's just kind of trying to zoom out and just being like, everything can be explained by this one theory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like the one theory that he says is that all text can be, it's like reverse Death of the Author. where like Death of the Author is just trying to give you all, well, like I think Death of the Author is a like the bath version of basically rubbish. Where it's like giving you all of this uh, individual power for yourself. And, oh, it doesn't matter what happened on the production side. It all just matters on how these texts texts are consumed by you, uh, 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 a man of freedom to decide what you think this is. Like, you know, basically sort of right, but also completely sort of wrong. And Foucault kind of points out that, you know, you don't really have as much autonomy in this as you think you do. Like, uh, you know, there are structures like surrounding you that kind of dictate what the discourses are. I should
0: point out at this stage, there is uh, an episode of the Ball Film Podcast on auteur theory. Uh, It was James and I discussing it. Mm -hmm. And when that episode was made, I was much more in the camp of, it's definitely a thing. Because I I just watched a load of Hitchcock films or whatever it was. And I thought, this explains it really, really well. I'm more skeptical Mm -hmm. now having uh, read more on it and having listened to more on it because I recognize the collaboration for example like the, the Hitchcock films I really really love like vertigo and North by Northwest those you have to credit as much well not as much but you have to give at least a good portion of the credit of those films and their 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 power to Robert Burks who is the cinematographer on them mm. and I think the same thing can be said about uh, Ingmar Bergman. The the Bergman films I'm less fond of are the ones where Gunnar Fischer is the cinematographer. The ones where Sven Nykvist is the cinematographer I think are much better. Mm-hmm. And definitely a, a part of that is just the fact that they look so much nicer, and that helps me get into the story more. Mm-hmm. So my opinion on the auteur theory has changed a bit. Looking mm-hmm. into
1: but even 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 with Vertigo, like Vertigo is kind of another example that kind of proves the point about you know author function and like consumption side thinking about auto rather than production side because like vertigo is a film about alfred hitchcock like in its most simple like you know it's a it's a popular reading at the minute but it's one that you know holds water where like vertigo is about alfred hitchcock and his relationship with women and how his relationship with women has come across in his films and how he's like and the reason so many people like vertigo is the fact that it's so sort of it's so transgressive compared to the rest of his films the rest of his films how women are portrayed in it kind of fits into a neat category but then Virgo he's breaking all of his own rules but again that's kind of like where auto theory comes back in it doesn't really you know it it doesn't really matter how it was produced per se but you're watching it and you're like this is an Alfred Hitchcock film I know what other Alfred Hitchcock films are like so this film makes sense to me because I know that he's breaking his own rules here like I think it's I would still argue it's extremely useful on the side of being you know, boys watching films
0: <laughs> I, I, I do think it is a really useful sort of shorthand kind of thing, mm. if you just want to describe it to people you want to get the idea across, it is very useful the example mm. a, a fact that I learned recently about Vertigo that I find really interesting Yeah, is that famously Hitchcock harassed a lot of the women he worked with Yeah, uh, and particularly Tippi Hedren the actress that starred in The Birds and Marnie Mm-hmm but Kim Novak has nothing but positive things to say about Hitchcock. Which interesting. is kind of bizarre, given that <laughs> her role in that film is this projection of every single sexual frustration the man has ever had. And apparently he was really nice to her.
1: Maybe <laughs> maybe had a very short-lived change of heart. <coughs> maybe. I mean, what interesting... That, that
0: role was going to go to Vera Miles, who ends up playing <laughs> uh, Lila Crane in psycho janet lee's sister oh okay sure oh,
1: I didn't
0: know that. she had a very fraught relationship with hitchcock Vera Miles, very good actress she's in uh the searchers the john ford film mm-hmm. i was going to ask you now, we've, hey, on, now we've, <laughs> that's all right <laughs> now that we've looked into the sort of the semantics of art house what is art house what isn't it we've kind of agreed it's, it's not that good a definition yeah I thought I'd ask you about some specific directors that are often associated with
1: Art House. Okay, I hope I know them. I hope I hope you're not going to try and pull the rug under my, under I'm my not, feet.
0: I'm not going to pull the rug out from under you.
1: Uh, I just wanted to right,
0: I just thought it'd be interesting maybe to get some of your takes on some of these, maybe talk about some films you've seen by them. Alright, cool. What's your opinion on Ingmar Bergman? Oh,
1: I've only seen... Which ones have I seen? I've seen... Persona. Although I live with Adam, that I live with was very upset by the way that I was watching Persona, because the, I got, I have a very short attention span, and like you know I'm a I'm a person who lives on the internet, so like you know if I'm watching a film, I'm like doing other stuff as well. So like <laughs> he got a, a picture of me where on one side of my laptop I had Persona playing. And the other side, I was just scrolling through Twitter, (laughs) which seems almost sacrilegious. But um, even through watching it like that, Persona is beautiful. Persona is, again, it's like, it just feels like it's film form kind of pushed to its absolute sort of limit. But then also on the thematic level, it kind of feels way ahead of its time. But you're watching like stuff like Portrait of a Lady on Fire now, and then you go back and watch Persona. And like Persona feels like a film that they would someone would make right now. I think it's absolutely stunning. I also saw uh, Autumn Sonata with uh, Ingrid Bergman. Uh, and what's the name of the do you know the name of the other woman in that film? It's Lee Volman. Ah. Excellent excellent trivia. Um, but no, that's watch like I watched it I think in the same week. A couple of days, as when I watched uh, inter Mezzo, Inter Mizzo which was Ingrid Bergman's uh, first film, um, and weirdly, um, apparently in in both her first film and her last film, she plays uh, a concert pianist, which is very strange and a very different movies. Um, but no, but Autumn Sonata is 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 beautiful. It's very it's very understated. But it's 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 heavy. Get, you, you don't expect how heavy it's going to be. Like, you know, you watch Persona and is the craziest thing you've ever seen. And every critic in the nineteen sixties when trying to just Because in the sixties and seventies, like, you know, this is when like academic film studies became a thing. Uh, this is when, you know, they started making all these film departments. Then like you got like people like Susan Sontag and like they're being like Persona is the height of cinema, this is the height of cinematic expression. And, like, you really got to believe it. Like, every sort of minute in that film just throws you with something new that you're not expecting. But it's also really sensual and beautiful. And a um isn't really like that. It's like, you know, it's pretty... I don't want to say easygoing, but you watch the first sort of 10 minutes, Yeah, get a general sort of... You know, you're, you're lulled into a false sense of security. But then when these long dialogue scenes happen, you know, it, it, it just kind of turns into, it's absolutely heartbreaking. <laughs> like it's it's, 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 like a tearjacker.
0: Just for the benefit of people listening, who might not have seen either film. Persona yeah. is the story, yeah, um, Persona is the story of a woman who comes under the care of a nurse. It's a mm. mute woman. Who's had something of a breakdown following a performance in a play. Mm. And it comes under the care of this nurse and retreats to a summer house. And when they're there, their conversations start to turn sensual. Uh, there's a scene where they discuss a past sexual encounter that the nurse had. That I think Slavoj Žižek <laughs> um, described oh, as the, described he's described it as the most erotic scene in all of cinema. So that's that gives you an oh. idea. Of, it yeah. gives you an idea of what personas like. That's a it's a very. Mm. A very sensual film about exploring female identity. It mm. uses it uses very artistic, surreal camera work and cinematography from Sven Nickvis to take you inside this kind of interior world mm. where you're exploring all these neuroses. But it's very beautiful. Mm. Autumn awesome Sonata is a really, really, <laughs> as you said, so it's a, it's a heartbreaking melodrama about mm. the estranged, painful relationship between. Uh, A piano, a formidably talented piano player, and her daughter. Mm. And after they they meet each other again, after having not spoken in years, they they kind of have this slightly tense day or so together, and then there's this nighttime confrontation between the two of them that takes up most of the film, and it's just line after line after line of heartbreaking dialogue. I think both films share the fact that. There's a certain point in both of them where through dialogue and through an intense interaction between two female characters, you're taken inside their minds and inside their world. Mm. The very start of Persona is very abstract. You get all sorts of bizarre images like a tarantula and a crucifixion. But then the scenes after that are somewhat surreal, but you can explain them. It's people talking and it's all it's a very heightened atmosphere, but it makes sense. and. Awesome Sonata does the same thing, but both of them have a sort of breaking point where you start to then get the flashbacks and the interior mental worlds of each of the characters. Hmm. It's interesting that those are the films you bring up for Bergman, because those are films, I'd say particularly Persona. Persona really does match that kind of arthouse description, doesn't it?
1: It really does. I really liked your description of a uh, Persona as being neurotic. Like, I think I... I, think I... I like, maybe I like the word neurotic to describe cinema more than I like uh, surreal. Like, because surreal just kind of gives you the impression that, like, you know, crazy stuff is just going to keep happening. And it's like, every every shot, it's like, whoa, that's mad. But neurotic, like, I think kind of explains the the motions of how these films actually kind of operate. Like, because the, the images that you kind of see aren't always entirely unrelated and like how the best sort of surreal cinema works um, and this is especially true for um uh for this as well like it's not just stuff just keeps happening and then you just have to accept it like you know again holy mountain i was watching holy mountain the other day this does this as well it's like these images are completely confusing to begin with but then they kind of linger in your head and you have to think about them and then like you have to sort of like a process of mapping in your head where all these like sort of stark pieces of imagery they 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 come together and by the end it's all it's entirely sort of cohesive like it doesn't really feel like there's too much that's like you wouldn't want to cut any persona despite it being sort of you know so many of these images just being you know what you might call surreal or confusing or strange (laughs) (laughs) like you know I, i like neurotic because you know, it acknowledges that you are a viewer sitting there watching it and you're trying to make sense of it and you're trying to map it all together. I like that description. Nicely done. Also, I like, it's, I feel like you'll have a lot more to say about this than, than, than I will maybe. But it is strange how Ingmar Bergman has, he, he focuses a lot on female subjects. Like, it's 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 interesting. I'm, I haven't pieced together anything cohesive about it, but what are you thinking about that? I think he had
0: an interview. uh, Oh, I I meant to mention this as well. Yeah. I thought this was an interesting topic. I'm sure we can get onto it later, but this is a Mm -hmm. a good segue. Ingmar Bergman was interviewed on The Dick Cavett Show. I've seen it. I've I've watched it. Now, this is amazing. For people who don't know, The Dick Cavett Show was an American talk show, like the Jimmy Kimmel Show or whatever the equivalent Mm -hmm. is now. Uh, It Mm -hmm. ran in the 70s, a little bit in the 80s, a little bit in the 60s. He had... People like Akira Kurosawa and Ingmar Bergman on just to chat mm-hmm. about stuff. That's the equivalent of Jimmy Kimmel having like Bella Tar and and like Lars Von Trier on. They just wouldn't do it now. Not to mm. sound like an old well, my, my generation kind of.
1: No, I agree. You know? I agree. Like the seventies. I mean, the seventies kind of seems great in most respects. But you know, talk shows seem so much better in the seventies. Like you know, the Dick Cavett show. Is there another one in America that? uh, What's uh, the David Frost? David Frost as well.
0: David uh, David Uh, Frost, Johnny Carson, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, like
1: all these, all these, like you know, the the interviews that they have with these people. Like you watch, you watch them now, and they're all just like trying to create headlines or create like one-off lines that will be exciting to hear. But like the seventies talk talk shows, they all just feel like proper conversations. And they're not even boring. Like it feels like the 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 presenters, the the chat show hosts, are properly sort. They're people with brains, you know. They're people with heads. They're people who can respond to things that are happening. At the you know, you watch like Jimmy Kimmel, and he's just throwing out lines that will be good for Twitter. (laughs) Yeah.
0: On on the point of Bergman, when Bergman is on the when when Bergman is on the Dick Cavett show. Hmm. I think the explanation that he gives is he thinks women are better actors. That's why he says. But then I I I think that maybe even if he thinks that's true, there's more going on than just that. Hmm. Because there are some male characters in his films that are central. I mean, a good example would be Seventh Seal, where women barely speak at all. That's Hmm. in some ways his most famous film, and that's a film all about male obsession with death. Hmm. Uh, And I just watched Winter Light again, which is very good. which is all about male religious anxiety. Mm-hmm. But most of his films do star women mm-hmm. and do, and and uh, the, there's often a theme of women and their relationships with children is quite a key thing. Persona mm-hmm. focuses on that. Fanny and Alexander is obviously sort of emblematic of that. Mm-hmm. I think in, on one level, that's him appealing to the classic melodramatic formula, which is, very uh, much in the mold of Douglas Sirk, which is women and their problems. You aim films, films towards women. These are films about childbirth, female mm-hmm. struggle, more so than what was at the time like a conventional masculine film, which won't be about like war or conflict. It's more about mm-hmm. internal struggle. So maybe those thematic preoccupations that were more associated with gender, the female gender in films, mm-hmm. appealed to him. Yes. But I think there's another there's another level to it even, Than that, which is that his films aren't just about women's struggles; they're about women's identity itself. I mean, Mm -hmm. persona—if you're going to boil it down to anything—is a film about identity. I mean, the term refers to an affected identity as a persona. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So I think really what he's looking at is identity, and he does focus a lot on female identity more so than on male identity. I Mm -hmm. I guess there is there is a lot of mystery as to why specifically he does that but maybe it's because it gives him a good opportunity to delve into quite controversial themes whilst kind of hiding it under this guise. Yeah, it's a woman's film, but look, yeah. really it's about sex and relationships. Mm. And he's giving quite interesting, quite acerbic commentary on those things.
1: Mm. I have another highbrow classy reference that you'll enjoy. Go on. I have another bit of post-structuralist theory to throw in there, you know, this is because this is that episode, you know. You can have your other episodes where you talk to Nick about about, about James Bond, and it's all very, you know, we talk about, oh, who's your favorite James Bond? No, this is a classy episode. If we're going classy, we're going classy. Um, and this is uh, Jacques Lacan. Let's talk about, he has a uh, because the avant garde is always kind of concerned with a, uh, a radical sort of subject, you know, like it's all about the subject, and like persona like, is very clearly about that. But then the idea that he has uh and this idea was kind of like the forefront to the, the the female gaze um but i think it's yeah it's like an earlier version of the female gaze but also it's one that i find a bit more appealing than the how the female gaze is often talked about now like because the persona is quite obviously not just a female gaze movie like you could probably make an argument for that but then you know he is a man (laughs) and like again if you're talking just about production then like sure female gaze is just something that you know we just want to be like it's made by women and it's different to men's films sure but the way that Jacques Lacan originally described it is that he thought of the feminine like capital F the feminine as like the ultimate radical subject because in his mind all discourse was inherently had inherently sort of like phallic uh, like, you know, that was the motivation behind it. All discourse was inherently phallic. And, and that it was all discourse was inherently sort of male. And then trying to find like the outside of it. Like, the way that he was kind of describing it was saying that, like, he said something like, all love is bad or something like that. But then of course, this is like the 60s. Uh, so it's like all heterosexual love. Um, but he was like, yes, fellow men, all love is a myth because you know the the feminine that you're imagining is just you trying to achieve some sort of great outside to yourself and you're trying to create the most radical like different position to your male phallic position um and like it's actually i only read this about two or three weeks ago because i never really wanted to read him before because all you know a lot of how he writes just makes it seem like everything he writes is entirely like nonsense So, like, it's very very hard to get into what he's saying a lot of the time. But I found this at least sort of fascinating. And, like, if you had to have a film to sort of describe how this is working, like, Persona is surely it. Like, it reminds me a bit of, I don't know if you've read any of her poetry, but Denise Riley, like, I feel like there's similar things happening uh, in her poetry in Persona, where it's like, the feminine isn't just something that's like being represented it isn't just like a good film because you know we're seeing women living women's lives like the way that the the lives that these women are leading are highly sort of fragmented and it's very difficult to get a sort of clear idea of who these people are and what their lives are um but this is almost sort of the point like you're trying to create, create a great outside if you were just going to be like Here's these two women, and they leave, and this is their life. Like that'd be the that'd be the masculine way of saying it. That would be the that would be a very radical position to take it all. Um, I think that's why, you know, I'd be interested to sort of see a parallel universe where it's like a a female director doing Persona, because you know, if you, I mean, the Lacan version of it is very sort of metaphor, metaphorical, and like obviously, you know, the same film could come out, but it'd be interesting just thinking about. How these sort of approaches are different like i think it's it's an like yeah i feel like just female gaze or something like that i don't think it does it justice i think there's a lot more going on there that's a really interesting point i like that a lot i mean
0: what you said about lacan and the idea of phallic imagery dominating culture yeah. i suppose one of the opening shots of persona and this was edited out of the british release of the film for years if you buy yeah. a british dvd copy of persona now I think all copies of Persona will have somewhere on them, uncut, complete, director's cut, something like that. Mm. Because the original UK release had the image of a penis Mm -hmm. uh, cut out of the film. In the the opening montage of images, where there's the tarantula and there's the hand being crucified, Mm -hmm. there is an image of a penis.
1: Mm.
0: Very, very clearly. Which is interesting because, to my knowledge, in terms of male characters in the film, there's two. There's the young yeah. the young boy at the beginning. If you want to talk about male gaze and female gaze, the image mm-hmm. at the very beginning of the film of a young boy who looks at a screen where the faces of the two leads alternate. Yeah. So There's this idea of uh, maternalism, the idea that he's looking towards a maternal figure with mm-hmm. this wall. Later on in the dialogue, there is this discussion about an abortion that one of the characters had mm-hmm. or tried to have. Um, and you have this idea of what, the uh, the idea of the male gaze itself
1: mm-hmm.
0: immediately following the most phallic of all <laughs> phallic images and then later on in the film you have the one adult male character who is a man that quite literally turns up and has sex with one of the characters then immediately leaves mm. what do you think about that in terms of the phallic imagery in the film and that men are either represented literally in terms of their sexuality or are a mm. figure that's looking for a mother.
1: Mm. Interesting. It is interesting. Well, like, you know that the, the young boy at the beginning, this is what I was gonna. This is the first thing that came to mind. Like, do you think that young boy with like his hands up on the screen? Do you think on a map, do you think that's Bergman being like, this is me? <laughs> 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 do you think that's his depiction of himself here? Because it is like. Because it is a male gaze movie. There's there's no way around it. It is a male gaze, like, you know. Because, yeah, it's a it's it's it exists on the side of production, so it is a male gaze. But, you know, do you, I I feel like a that's the start of a reading there. Like that young boy, is Bergman, and him touching the whatever that is. I never, you know, where where are I when this is happening? I don't know. Inside his head, who's to say? but uh <laughs> but it feels like a it feels like it's truly sort of symbolic for him what's the what are the other male characters doing again
0: he's a male character that arrives at the house in quite an abstract sequence and you see his face it's the classic profile shot versus looking directly into the camera you see his face it's implied he has sex with one of the two women then that's it. That's all he's
1: in the film for. It's an incredibly brief role. I think he has about three lines. Well, even that is like, it's kind of messing with, it's it's transgressive of the sort of like domestic positioning that women sort of have at this moment. Like, it's it's still creating a sort of outside. But like, it reminds me of, I'm just going to keep bringing it back to Portrait of a Lady on Fire, because this is a film that I think is a very interesting comparison. Because in that film, it's much more clear cut. Because you know, on the production side, it's a female gaze movie. In the fact that you know, it's made by women. <laughs> it's made. It's a work. You know, there's no there's no question of the of the male, like, to be seen there unless you are talking about in the sort of like post-joke sort of ways, like you know, and how it's done in that film is you know the the entrance of this man like at the end is like just a like it's making you remember the fact that this like these patriarchal structures like they exist uh and like you you know you see it and it's like a great sort of outside and you're like oh god like from the way you're describing this in like in 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 persona though like it's interesting because it's not just you know i don't think it's just that the film is a female space and then oh look a man enters And then isn't that, you know, it's not like an inside outside, like, like that. Like, it feels like it's taken, it feels like it's working within like the, the patriarchy. It feels like it's working within the domestic space of these women. And like, just creating the most sort of transgressive position that could exist there. Again, it's why I think it's important that he's put himself in the film at the beginning. He's not trying to blag it. And create, like it's not like Autumn Sonata maybe where it's like, he's just trying to create this female space, like there's ruptures in it.
0: And I think there's a reason why Persona is the more critically acclaimed film that's talked about a lot more. Autumn Sonata Mm -hmm. isn't really anywhere to be found on a lot of those greatest films of all time lists. I really like it. Uh, But just in terms of what you were saying about the young boy at the beginning of the film reaching out towards the screen being Bergman, there's Mm -hmm. one theory that that boy is meant to be a representation of this child who is a very painful memory in the head of the mute actress character, mm-hmm. uh, who she tried to abort, but didn't succeed in doing so. So that's one theory. Yeah. Your, your suggestion that it's Bergman is interesting, because if you want to avoid the idea of practicing death of the author on Persona, Bergman dated both of the lead actresses.
1: Did he actually?
0: He, he was in a relationship with Bibi Anderson, I'm just going oh, wow. to Google that to make sure it's true, but I'm convinced it is. And he, he had a child with Liv Ullman.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So oh. Gosh. So Liv, Liv Ullman and Bibi Anderson are the two leads in that film, and Bergman was in a relationship with both of them. If he is that child at the beginning, reaching out towards the screen, touching mm-hmm. the screen of the faces of the two women he has had a sexual relationship with, that's some very interesting, strange imagery to put in your film.
1: Yeah, that's true because yeah, cuz he's he's not gone for like a balding 4 year old man. He's gone for a child, which is or, or even a like a
0: strong man or a handsome
1: man or a conventional movie <laughs> star.
0: He's chosen a child. Oh, yeah, of course. It's this yeah. idea that he is as a child to them and that he's reaching out to them and they are maternal figures to him. If if we're reading it mm. in the sort of way that you'd read Vertigo as a sort of director's confession from Hitchcock, If we read Persona with the child as Bergman reaching out towards Anderson and Allman, then is Mm. he trying to confess that he feels that he has no power related to women or that they have power over him? Because I agree with what you're saying about the fact that it's a very male gazy film in the sense Mm. that it's directed by a man. It's focusing on definitely the sort of central aspects of women. It's got a very strong sexual undercurrent to it. But in its own way, it's kind of proto-feminist in that men are completely absent from the narrative for the most part or are literally just there to have sex with one of the women and they on the women's terms completely
1: Mm.
0: and the fact that it is this it explores themes of abortion themes that were pressing two women and there's a there is in fact actually two other men in the film that i've just remembered and this is really trippy and metatextual do you remember the final shot of the film no. The final shot of the film is, I think it's a repeat of a shot that we had earlier on, which is a close-up of Liv Ullman. But then the camera mm-hmm. changes up, and we see Sven Nykvist and Ingmar Bergman shooting that scene, and that's how the film ends. Oh, really? So they, the the two male leading creative forces on the film, Sven Nykvist, whose beautiful cinematography really highlights the central aspects of the women and Ingmar Bergman, who is the the whole film is his idea, they Mm. put themselves in it.
1: Well again, this is what I was saying about all these films from the 60s and 70s. This is how they all end. Persona, Holy Mountain, Monty Python. They, (laughs) You know, these directors, they they run out of ways to end their films, so like let's just say it's a film. (laughs) Let's pull out. I I I like that. That's interesting. So yeah. So I suppose interesting. I don't have a point to immediately come off that, but that's a that's an interesting thing to point out. But no. But yeah. No. I feel like the child sort of it was just talking about mapping because again, these surreal films are not just like you just throw anything in there. Like all these things are connected. So I feel like, yeah, probably the most sort of straightforward way of talking about it is that the child is there because a lot of the film is about motherhood and a lot of the film, you know, and 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 everything that comes out of that. But then again, I guess this is how, like, this sort of neurotic cinema happens. Like, it's not that, like, these links are, like, there, but they're not, like, there, you know. Like it's not like it's not like the Avengers, (laughs) where where it's like I am sad because I'm a I'm a mother and blah blah blah. blah. You you know what? I was watching. uh, We I won't stay too long on the Doctor Who chat because I know we both love the Doctor Who chat. This is not the time or place for that. I was watching Doctor Widow and the Wardrobe yesterday. Which um, is awful. Can I just say it's terrible?
0: It's one of the worst Uh, episodes of the
1: show ever. But at the end. There's this monologue he ha where the doctor has where he's saying that Claire Skinner... is it her name Claire Skinner? Yeah, yeah. Claire Skinners can can operate the ship because she is a mother. And like and then there's a very insulting line where, where he's like, She's not just a woman, she's a mother. Which, you know, that's a you know, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> a lot to unpack. <laughs> but like, you know, this is sort of like you know, that's a straightforward way of doing these things. Like, these are the links that exist. You know, I like, you know, a neurotic cinema is like, sure, these things are kind of like, kind of connected, but the fun of watching them, like, you know, like a David Lynch film, is like, you know, you have to just get these two things that are very, very, very tangentially related and pull them together. I feel like it is a fun equilibrium point where it's like, you know, I'm thinking of Inland Empire here, where it's like, I feel like you might have actually been coming onto David Lynch at some point in this. I feel like you have a list of David Lynch's right there. But it's reminding me of Inland Empire, where it's like, the first part of watching Inland Empire, you're just entirely sort of confused because you have all these different strands of imagery, which don't make sense. Then in the ultimate sort of neurotic move, he doesn't explain how they all come together, but you get like a sense of how they all kind of come together. And like how they're all sort of related, like that's the exact sort of way that these films happen. So I suppose, yeah, I think the boy thing there is a good example of that because it kind of makes sense, but it doesn't really make sense. But there's connections there. And
0: what's really great about the, the that character of the the boy that doesn't speak but reaches out to the screen that seem to wake up in we assume either a hospital bed or a morgue. It looks like he's waking up from a slab that he's dead. So there's this idea of coming mm. to life and looking for a maternal figure. Is this, an, is this a birth metaphor? Is this an idea of just looking for compassion and friendship or guidance? What's great is when we talk about Lynch and when we talk about Bergman, we can talk about them. They don't mm. try and tell us and dictate to us every single aspect of this is what this means. I mean, you mentioned yeah. the Avengers. I'm certain that there is, there's at least one person at uni, probably lots of people and across the world, but just specifically at the uni that would have a whole argument about how oh, that's actually an arthouse film. It's about the, you know. But when it comes to Persona, we can have a really lengthy discussion about one scene right at the beginning of the film and what it means. Mm-hmm. And both of us can have different takes, not even the same take, and still be mm. somewhat satisfied with the fact that there is mystery there. And I like that you brought Lynch into the conversation.
1: I think you would have, I knew
0: that would make you happy. <laughs> Always, always makes me happy. My my two favorite yeah. David Lynch films are his. Well, what what supposedly are his last two films, Mulholland mm-hmm. Drive and Inland Empire. He said he won't make any more films. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, but I, I I bring those up specifically because a lot of people draw parallels between Persona and Mulholland Drive.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen Mulholland Drive, and I know that I really should have, but I haven't. This has thrown your entire section into disarray. That's fine because I can I can try to very briefly explain monologue. Yeah, well, I
0: will Mulholland, sit here as an audience. Mulholland Drive again is a film about two women who form an intense uh, relationship, eventually a sexual relationship. But the whole point of the film is it's interrogating both of their identities, how they're different from each other and how they're the same, and how one of them creates the other. Mm-hmm. So, like Persona, it's a male gazy film that focuses on two women and their relationship with each other. And there's an idea of shifting identities and dynamics between them. Another film in the exact same vein from the seventies by an American, a film I love and is massively underappreciated is three women by Robert Altman. Have you seen that? I have not, but I'm going to Google it. That film stars Sissy Spacek and Shelley Duvall, who are two of my favorite actresses ever. They're amazing. Mm-hmm. And that is basically just Robert Altman does a Bergman film. And again, that's a film about two women who form an intense relationship. Uh, I think there's there's less of a suggestion of sensuality and sexuality, but there's definitely a very, very, very strong theme of motherhood that um, underlies that entire film. The ending scene in particular, I wouldn't dare spoil it because it's brilliant. But
1: mm-hmm. if you
0: haven't seen that film before, when you get to the end, it's a proper what kind of scene, which where essentially one of the women is referring to another as her mother and there's a a, there's a very strong uh scene of actual childbirth near the end of the film Mm -hmm. so like like bergman's film it's about motherhood centrally and it's about this idea of shifting identities between two women and it's a male gaze film Mm. So it's interesting that those are three separate art films made by three very different directors that all deal with these central themes. And on one level, that is just the fact that um, Ingmar Bergman made an incredibly good film and then people afterwards re- saw it, really liked it and wanted to make similar films. But it, it also draws the fact that when we're talking about arthouse films, all of them potentially and I think this is a good definite uh, a better thing to focus on maybe when you're looking at definition in terms of the way that I think about art house films is the fact that they are films that deal with themes more so than just ex- expository plot you know what I mean like if, if someone was going to say oh let's go and see an art house film I'm not expecting them to take me to the Avengers and then say actually the Avengers is an, you know I'm expecting to watch something like Mulholland Drive or Persona where I, I'll probably leave not quite understanding everything that happened.
1: See, this is. Have you ever read any David Bordwell? No. Please tell me. (laughs) He's like one of the big fat film theorists. Uh, And literally yesterday, I finished writing an essay that used bits of his work. But how he describes, like, you know, it's it's interesting how you know you think of something like like Citizen Kane or something like that, or films that came out of like classical, like pre nineteen sixty Hollywood, like. Something like Citizen Kings* is interesting, because on the one hand, it's not so much a film where you sit around and you think about what's happening, and you're like, oh, this is interesting. Like there, the innovation is all kind of happening on the screen, and it's all kind of happening through the spectacle. But how he describes how this classical version of spectacle happens, or how classical films work, which is kind of what got like obliterated during the new wave, was that, you know, everything that kind of happens is happening because of cause and effect like it's everything is entirely sort of self-contained and everything like character time space it's all on the service of this cause and effect narrative which is happening like boom 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 something happens so something happens so something happens and like throughout all this there's like there's there's one overall desire there's one overall sort of goal that everyone wants to to reach But this is why, you know, it's why I still have a an appreciation of films that are like classical. Like on the one hand, sure, I I do love, you know, all my favorite. I think all my favorite films are like the sort that we've been describing so far. But then I think a lot of the joys of watching classical Hollywood is that it's not really like this at all. Like a lot of it is just so much on the surface, and so much of it is just happening right there and like you know you're just going along for the ride like you know it's a wonderful life is I think my favorite example of this where it's like you know I don't sit around and think oh what was that about (laughs) I know what it was about like it makes it very clear but you know it's 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 incredibly sort of emotional um but no but that's a it's a it's a useful way of, of thinking about these things like I think I think you'll I think you especially because I know you love old Hollywood films. Like I, yeah, go on.
0: I was just gonna say I, there are some of them that I really do love. I'm not sure I'm I describe myself as like oh I love all of them. There's a lot of them that don't do it for me at all. All about Eve. I tried to watch. I couldn't stand it. Um, yeah. You know if I, I like what you're saying when you, in terms of there are a lot of old Hollywood films that everyone loves that are critically acclaimed that are praised that are cultural staples and that are very, very, very cause and effect. Casablanca is a really good example as well as wonderful. Casablanca, really, really simple plot. It's he's in love with her, she's in love with him, they can't be together. That's basically Mm -hmm. the story. You you, you know Mm -hmm. it from the second it starts really exactly where it's going. But everyone loves it. It's it's the atmosphere, it's the chemistry between the leads, it's the time and a place that it evokes or something completely different, I don't know, like the Philadelphia story. Which is another mm. one of my favorite old Hollywood films,
1: which you keep telling me to watch, <laughs> which I keep telling <laughs> to watch, which I have ready to watch, but I haven't done it yet.
0: It's amazing. It's it's a really really good funny comedy, mm. but
1: it's even, yeah.
0: Go on. I was just now. I was just going to say it follows that cause and effect thing perfectly. It's Cary Grant mm. does this, so Catherine Hepburn has to do this. Then Jimmy Stewart does this, so Catherine Hepburn has to react to do that. It's very cause and effect.
1: Whereas something like Persona yeah. is its own universe of weird logic. Exactly. But then even, like, I I know before we were trying to describe, like, we were being a bit disparaging about it, and we are being like, oh, like, all these regular films, like, The Avengers and Transformers, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, there are, like, you know, there's not so much auteurs in classical Hollywood, but, like, there's a few that you can kind of point to. Like, sure, like, Orson Welles, but everyone points to Orson Welles. But, like, you know, Douglas Sirk. Like, Douglas Sirk films or like classical films they're like cause and effect boom 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 but again i just think so much emotion comes through it but i think a lot of that is also just because of what's on the screen like you know it's a it's a it's 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 sort of it almost works in the same sort of ways as as how i was maybe describing persona or it's like these are connections you have to make yourself like with Cirque films i think it's happening in a different way like Cirque films the narrative is the very clear bit. The narrative is very, you know, this happens, this happens, this happens, you understand. I think all the complexity there happens on the screen. It happens through colour. You know, on the in the foreground, like you'll see Cirques like you'll see two Cirque characters having a conversation. It'll just be a regular sort of melodrama. But then like in the backgrounds, like the backgrounds will be strange, strange colours and you know so much contrasting sort of emotions will be like you know you'll have something going on in the foreground that has a very clear emotion to it but then something in the background there's some random detail in the shot will be throwing you somewhere else so like there's just a lot of different approaches to it like you know the the, the type that i love i you know i especially love these what we're now calling neurotic films but there's oh, cinema you know <laughs> <laughs> well, When you mention old Hollywood and auteurs,
0: the mm. William Friedkin point that he makes in the podcast uh, The Movies That Made Me, the episode with him, which I recommend, it's really good, listen to it if you yeah. have. He says that he loves Michael Curtiz. Now, Mike, if you don't know who Michael Curtiz is, and if you're listening to this... I do,
1: I do, because we, mo- we, we, we do half a module on him.
0: But if, if you're listening to this and you don't know who Michael Curtiz is, that's I know that Sam knows. He's... A director that's behind lots and lots and lots of films, but his name isn't particularly known. For example, he directed White Christmas and Casablanca, right? Mm-hmm. Those are two very interesting films. I think he directed, what, The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn yeah. as well.
1: Mm-hmm. So And, uh, and uh, what's that one film noir film called? Milton, Milton Pierce? Mildred Pierce. Mildred Pierce, that's the one. He did that as well, which is excellent.
0: So there you go. And the point that William Friedkin makes about Michael T- Michael Curtiz is he didn't have a, a specific style. You wouldn't necessarily know he directed the film just from watching the film, but he's really, really, really good and should be appreciated more, is the point that William Friedkin makes, which is a really interesting point. He's a director that's incredibly talented, but not really an auteur because he doesn't put his specific stamp on the film. If you want to describe a Curtiz film, you can't really do it because it's lots of different films that don't really... Share an aesthetic. Whereas, if you want to describe a Kubrick film, it's like you know mm. the Kubrick stare, the 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 wide-angle lens, the tracking shot down the corridor, whatever it is. You can always look at very specific
1: elements. don't mm. even Kubrick's a little bit like this. But no, sorry, continue. But Kubrick's a little bit like that.
0: In terms of genre, yeah. Kubrick definitely hopped genres. But Full mm. Metal Jacket and The Shining, you can tell they're the same person. You can yeah, absolutely true. tell from the second they start the use of color. Mm the use of close-up, the use of long text. It's, it's, it's the same. You can just tell it's the same director.
1: Mm-hmm. In
0: terms of old Hollywood and auteurs, there are definitely people that, like you made the point with Orson Welles, are very clearly auteurs, like John Ford. Yeah. I mean, it, the point that Orson Welles made about John Ford, I mean, when Orson Welles made Citizen Kane, he himself was sorting out the lighting because he didn't know that that was the cinematographer's job because he mm-hmm. had never worked on a film before. And Greg Toland basically let him do it for a bit, because he was like, no, I want to see what he does. This is going to be interesting. And the point that Orson awesome Welles made when someone said, you can't do that, that's the cinematographer's job, was I've seen hundreds of John Ford films. Every single film seems to have a different cinematographer, but they all look the same. <laughs> and it's true. If you watch a John yeah. Ford film, you can tell it's him, even though there's a different cinematographer on most of them. Mm. because john ford was a great example of what we'd use as a shorthand term auteur because all of his films have a very specific look howard hawks doesn't necessarily have a specific look and quentin tarantino as much as (laughs) the thing the thing about tarantino is it's it's just annoying hearing about him all the time if you try and have a conversation with anyone about film at uni they'll bring up him and christopher nolan and it gets very boring very quickly (laughs) but yeah Quentin Tarantino makes a really, really good point about Howard Hawks, which is that his style isn't necessarily the aesthetic, it's the type of characters in the film. So in Howard Hawks films, you usually have this idea of this stand-up all-American guy, it's Cary Grant in Only Angels Have Wings, and uh, His Girl Friday who's kind of a smooth-talking, cool dude, but he's always this paternal role. There's never a challenge. There's never some subversive, neurotic dude. He's always straight up, he's the hero, he's All-American. And there's usually a woman who is independent and feisty, but ultimately has his back. And that that just repeats through basically every Howard Hawks film. And you can even see that in something like Rio Bravo, right? Because Rio Bravo is completely different from, say, uh, His Girl Friday. His Girl Friday is a screwball comedy, where you have Cary Grant um, just being incredibly charming and going after uh, to ter- uh, Teresa Russell's character. And it's funny and it's all over the place. It's a very sort of scatterbrained film, but it's incredibly fun. Then you have Rio Bravo, which is this very slow, very long Western where you have John Wayne and Angie Dickinson. And in that mm-hmm. film, again, even though it's completely separate, it's a different genre, it's a different style, it's a different mood, it's a different tone. John Wayne is this all-American hero who's this paternal figure to a group of lovable characters. And Angie Dickinson is this feisty woman who won't be told to stay in her place, but ultimately backs up the man. Mm-hmm. So, I, mean, I think that's the best point Tarantino's ever made about anything ever. If you go on YouTube and you search the phrase Quentin Tarantino, Jean-Luc Godard, you will find a video which is just audio over a series of clips from Godard films. Mm-hmm where tarantino says god is one of those directors you watch to get to the next step he helps you find out what who you are as a director you sort of recognize it and then you go to the next step that's a perfect description of who quentin tarantino is he's mm-hmm. he's the director that you watch when you're like 14 mm-hmm. and you and you think oh i want to see something a bit edgy a bit different a bit similar so you watch his films and you go And then for a while, you're obsessed with them. I think most of us were. We had that sort of Grinch phase where we were like, oh, Glorious is the best (laughs) film ever. Mm -hmm. And then you move on to other stuff. Mm -hmm. It's a step in the path, you know. It's good that it's there. But I'm sure that you'll agree with this. I hope you will agree with this. And if anyone's listening to this (laughs) by this point, hopefully at least one of you will sympathize with this. If you're listening to this point, you've, you, you probably have at least some interest in directors like John Ford and uh, Ingmar Bergman. When you try and discuss film with anyone, they always bring up Tarantino within like a minute. When you're like, oh, what, do, what are you into? Oh, film. Oh, Tarantino's go- no! it's It gets so annoying after a while when it's like you, there's, there's an entire universe of cinema out there. <laughs> We live in a world now where thanks to streaming services for all, the, all their faults and thanks to places like Amazon and eBay for all their faults, we mm. have such easy access to every single film ever made. Mm. You literally go on eBay right now and probably get a copy of like The Mirror by Tarkovsky for like three pounds used and it'll be in your house within mm. like four days. Or you could go mm-hmm. to the library, your University of Warwick student, they have all this stuff. Mm. And no every conversation has to just be about <laughs> Marvel and Tarantino. And it's like, please, just watch something that isn't that. I'm not even saying it's bad. They're well-made, and I get why people love them. But watch something else too. What do you mm. think about that, Sam?
1: I kind of agree. Like, no, I, I, I do agree. Like, it reminded me of what something Scorsese was saying in an interview he was doing. Um, this might be kind of tangential to what you were saying. Um, but he was talking about the idea of elitism. Um, and like there's a very like mean, a lot of the arguments made against like, you know, art cinema or anything like this, or trying to broaden new horizons or just trying to discover new sorts of cinema is that, you know, so many of these directors like Bergman are just immediately saw, uh because they're associations with like the academic, like they're just branded as elitism. Uh, it's like elitist to uh, think this. But, like, something Scorsese had an interesting sort of point on this. Where well, he was saying, like, I think Scorsese said something to the effect of, like, elitism is absolutely a crazy idea. Um, and, like, the way that I think he was talking about how he thought that curation had a real benefit to it. Like, I think it's something you can kind of see, like, movie do this a bit. Um, although maybe I kind of wish they had a better selection of actual films on their platform. Um, yeah, you know, it'd be nice if they could just collect like they just have one streaming platform for all the good films, you know. But uh, <laughs> again, I I feel like I feel like you're right. I feel there's a there's a there's a process to it. Just, like and the process, yeah.
0: Just explain what curation is. What Scorsese was talking about with that.
1: Okay. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Like what he was saying was like he thinks that curation as a form of finding new, like, voices to hear is absolutely a valuable thing. Like, because I think someone accused him of being, yeah, someone. I think someone actually accused him of being elitist when he was just talking about all these old directors and, like, when you're talking about Bergman or anyone like that, and, like, oh, but if you bring up these people, then, you know, you only, it's a, only the elite can enjoy these films. Like, no. Like, again, there's a process to it. Like, you know, everyone has to go through the Tarantino pipeline to to get to, yeah.
0: I definitely agree with that. And, like, what, what I would like to do with this podcast and with the Bore film section is try to make it clear to people because there's such a pervasive idea that art cinema, if you're going to call it that, just because it's a, a convenient term to use for any film that's maybe a little bit challenging are critically based and maybe people think oh i don't want to watch that it's, it's in black and white or it's long you know that those are opinions a lot of people have they don't think of them as inaccessible give them a go yeah. you might not like them but like it, i think the solution to getting to like art films is the solution to a lot of things which is just try it a lot if you yeah. if you watch right if right now you go to the sight and sound poll of the greatest films ever made That list of the hundred, and you randomly choose, I'd say, I don't know, ten of them. I'd Mm. say you're probably gonna really dislike like four of them. You're gonna be indifferent on about two of them. You're gonna kind of like two of them, Mm. and the remainder you will love. Mm. It's just you have to just try lots of them. That's the that's the Mm. secret.
1: Why do you think Tarantino is the entry? Why do you think he specifically is like the entry director? Like, this is, this is what I'm interested in this. What do you think it is about his films? We even just like, I feel like for him, though, even like Pulp Fiction is like the entry film. Like, what do you think it is about that where you can be like watching just whatever and not having any understanding of this? What do you think it is about that film and or that director that kind of changes that?
0: I think if you're talking about Tarantino and entry points into like more challenging cinema and art cinema, you have to talk about the fact that he's a very male director. It's mostly boys, isn't it? There's a, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are non-binary and women who look at his films and like them as well. But in terms of the fact that that entry point is such a male thing, I really think it is. Because it, I, it, I guess it has to do with the fact that Pulp Fiction has so much cultural cachet. It's kind of a rite of passage seeing it just because people talk about it so much. So yeah. I think that... In itself, as part of it, it's a good question to be honest because there's lots of directors kind of like Tarantino. Mm. He's
1: he's
0: he's much talked of. It's the fact that people are allured to his films by the fact that they're very violent. I think people kind of want, like, oh, it's a violent film that's much talked of by people who who is supposed to be cool and a genius. Mm. And his films are very accessible whilst being really really different to most mainstream cinema. You can mm. watch a film like Django Unchained, for example, and think, whoa, that's completely different to. The film, you know, i I usually just watch the the Avengers films and Harry Potter. That's been my experience with cinema as a kid. And now I've just seen Django Unchained when I'm thirteen at a friend's sleepover. That's made mm. me want to watch different films. Cool. Which is mm. great. That's an experience people should go through. Mm. But people get stuck in it. <laughs> and it. And like people just watch them over and over, which is fine. I can't mm. complain because I'm I'm definitely guilty of it. Mm. But if you watch Django Unchained and you really love it, the next yeah. logical step is to go, well what made Tarantino make Django Unchained. Oh, he's written a lot of stuff about how he likes Sergio Leone. I'll check out Once Upon a Time in the West. Then you see that, and then you think, oh, Claudia Cardinale, the actress in that film's really great. I'll look and say, oh, she was in a film called Eight and a Half. Everyone talks about this. So then you watch Eight and a Half, and then you mm. might hate Eight and a Half. But then you think, well, why do people talk about this so much? Let's see other directors from the time. What about Antonioni? Then you watch La Ventura. And that's the chain. That's what you've got to do. That's what you've got to go through. But... Mm-hmm you just it's that step it's that that yes. vital step into watching some the the amount of people i've talked to who won't watch a film because it 's in black and white mm-hmm. it's painful it's absolutely painful when someone mm-hmm. says it but mm-hmm. people don't watch it or if it's if it's subtitled
1: Guarantino, this is a this is kind of from the point I was making God know how God knows how long ago but um it's podcast um, time it's just it takes all of liminal space isn't it no i think uh tarantino is an interesting entry point for actually thinking about how the nature of the auteur and like the art house film has changed since the 70s because like obviously in the 70s and the 60s there's this big movement of just it all exploding and like kind of how i described it before i think after that is so interesting because like tarantino Yeah, I think Tarantino we can describe as definitely a post New Hollywood person, because like so much of what he's doing is that he's just referencing like stuff that was happening in the 70s, and like you know his films are like curation in themselves. In that, I think again it's something that I like about him. Like, yeah, his films don't feel new within themselves; they feel like uh, they're just extended sort of references to everything else. But then this is kind of like the cultural like response to uh, like you know think of music like you know the like sampling like most samples are kind of from these explosions of genres that were happening around the late 60s early 70s like this is like look at most like hip-hop samples they basically all come from around there and like it's basically all just like funk or soul or whatever from around there so like it's weird because on the one hand if i wanted to describe like for film what's happened to the author since New Hollywood kind of died away on the one hand I think there's Tarantino but then in my mind the two other like great um like auteurs who have kind of come about since New Hollywood ended like I mean there's a lot of them but like the two that you know appeal to me one's obviously David Lynch who kind of was also a New Hollywood director um then Michael Haneke is another one I point to like his films you know, they feel entirely sort of new. They feel like they've got that new Hollywood sort of energy behind them. There's something else There's something else going on there. Like, you know, in thinking about describing David Lynch is so interesting because, like, you look at A Razorhead and, like, A Razorhead is very much just a new Hollywood movie, maybe. Like, I don't know how accurate you think that might be, but I think generally it's just a new Hollywood movie. And, like, whilst everyone else in New Hollywood kind of, like, became what you might want to say commercialised, but they just kind of, like, either just became obscure or made what you make just, like, mainstream movies. Or, and it's, Mm -hmm.
0: obviously, it's a controversial person to talk about, but someone like Woody Allen who yeah. basically in the 70s made like three good films and then mm-hmm. for the rest of his career basically just made the same film again and again and again and again. Occasionally he made some great ones like Crimes and Misdemeanors but
1: for the most okay. part
0: he's basically just trying to remake Annie Hall and like, trying to recapture the magic <laughs> and he
1: just yeah. never, never managed yeah, it. yeah, but with David Lynch it's weird because I feel like he kind of he it feels like he kind of moved with the times to continue making stuff that was interesting, you know. Yeah. Like, you know, you get uh like Twin Peaks. Like, you know, it felt like he made a razor head. And once he'd made a razorhead, he was kind of done with his big cinematic statements for a while. Like there's stuff like Blue Velvet where it was just kinda of like a mainstream Hollywood film but a bit strange. Like but then I feel like the next great leap he made was Twin Peaks. Where I felt like he was pushing the T V form like, to its absolute extremity. But then, even past then, like, he says that the Art House film is now dead. But I think, like, the best thing he's done, he did recently, like, Inland Empire. Like, it feels like, you know, one of the, like, you know, it's very hard finding new developments that have happened in films film since New Hollywood. Um, Or even if you're in New Hollywood, like, since the French New Wave. But, like, you know, Inland Empire feels like it's res- it's a response to like Dogma 95, and like Dogma 95 is 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 a rare
0: one. Just to explain <laughs> to people who might yes. not know what Dogma 95 is, it was a yeah. uh, a filmmakers movement in Denmark in the 1990s, and it was basically this idea that you have incredibly ascetic, pure filmmaking. The idea that you don't bring props in, you just use what's there. You use digital cameras. The idea that you try and get something feeling very natural and realistic. Uh, directors like Thomas Vinterberg and Lars Von Trier are
1: associated. Yeah, I feel like that's a that's a that was a very succinct uh, description. Congratulations, much better <laughs> than I could have nice. done. I would have <laughs> been like, oh, it's like uh, they film it on uh, digital, blah blah blah. <laughs> yeah, no, but I feel like you know maybe okay. If I had to summarize what I think cinema post new Hollywood would be. This is all you know, top of my head because like, new Hollywood and like French new wave so much of it was about the relationship between the artist and the film Like, and it feels like since that has happened everything past then like a lot of it's just been about computers but a lot of it now feels like the structures that go behind making films, not so much in like and how it's a relation between uh, the artist and the art, but just like now it feels like how film is consumed uh, and how it's like made on a technical level is now the motivator behind the new experimental. So like you have Tarantino, where it's like you know in the world of consumption, where you have all these different genres you just move them all together into like one cohesive thing like sure that's happening that's happening there and like you know sampling is doing the same thing but also like michael haneke like you know michael haneke it feels like all of his films are kind of about television or it all just feels like they're all about film but not so much in the fact that it's like what's his relationship to the film he's making like it might have been in new hollywood like he's kind of concerned with what's the effect of film and tv on people like and a lot of the time his and like how and like how the he kind of gets a bit post-structurist about it really he's a bit like you know what are the overall sort of like systems that are in place that are dictating how we respond to these things um so he get, he takes it he kind of de- he, he 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 takes it a lot out of himself really. Um, and it's all just about the structure, like, and you know, he he says some like some of his films are wildly conservative because of this. He's just like you know, films are bad because uh, violence bad and film films are violent. But like, <laughs> yeah, you know, but actually in like the in the film itself, like you know, television is an important like he 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 makes an important point out of it.
0: We've been talking <laughs> for about two hours now. Mm-hmm. And I thought it might be nice to ask you, in terms of ending it, how you personally
1: got into art film. Oh, that is a nice question. I didn't know. I didn't know what I thought that question was going to be. I thought it was going to be. I don't know what I thought it was going to be. No, I have a clear like a uh, line. I feel like our lines of getting into art films might be actually quite similar, because um, the reason I even started liking films. To begin with was because when i was a very young child as i imagine is probably true for you as well i was very obsessed with a television show called doctor who <laughs> and through this i just got you know i just got very interested in like tv and 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 film and then i'm trying to remember what even happened between then and between like there's a landmark sort of like i think when i was I don't even know what happened between then. Basically, there's like two key pivotal events. One is I am five and Doctor Who begins and I get obsessed with it and that never goes away. And then I think I'm like 14 and for some reason I watched 2001 Space Odyssey. I don't know why this happens, but when I'm like 14, I think this is like the the coolest thing ever. And then from 2001, I just watch everything else. Was it with a parent, 2001? No, my parents aren't really into film. Okay. I remember. It's because, no, I used to really like sci-fi. Sci-fi used to be like my thing. Uh, and I think the sci-fi that I, w- I, I was reading off the back of liking Doctor Who was like Douglas Adams. And I think from liking Douglas Adams at a young age, somehow that pivoted into me watching 2001 Space Odyssey. Don't know how, it just happened.
0: They're just. Because that happened, because you mm. watched, because you watched 2001, that opened the gate for you, right? That's, yeah,
1: it opened, it opened the Kubrick gate, that, and the Kubrick gate opened the everything gate.
0: That it's it's a gateway drug, isn't it? Once you have that one, <laughs> once you have that one art film that does it for you, yeah, you you basically think, well, I can watch anything now. And once you have mm-hmm. that one film that's like a black and white film from the 50s in a different language, you think, well, if I like this, there's other yeah. films. I I always think that when it comes to film I'm really lucky I had parents that made me watch <laughs> art films and and older mm. films at a very young age. When I was about mm. 8 I watched Kind Hearts and Coronets in a cinema.
1: Yeah, see, I get very jealous of this. Like I I I'm, I'm I'm always very impressed by your breadth of knowledge about film. Like it makes me because I feel like you know I had to be kind of autodidactic about it for the most part until I came to uni. Like I had to just teach myself this. Imagine Imagine growing up and just having parents who were like just like who just know these things and just show you all of these things. That's that's crazy.
0: It's you know it's it's luck really,
1: but yeah.
0: It, I was as I say, I was I was taken to see. I was taken to see, and that's the crucial thing. I wouldn't have chosen to see it if I had the choice. i have been like, no, I'm not going to watch *Kind Hearts and Coronets*. It came out in the forties. I'm eight. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to watch that. I want to watch a Will Ferrell film or whatever it would have been. i to watch *Anchorman*.
1: <laughs> or Will. Fer-
0: <laughs> but no, I watched *Kind Hearts and Coronets*. And it Mm -hmm. made me laugh. I found it really funny. It's still one of my favorite films now. And from Mm -hmm. watching a black and white old film and laughing, I thought Mm -hmm. I can watch other old black and white films. Maybe they'll make me laugh. Maybe I'll like them. And again, I remember watching North by Northwest for the first time when I was about six, I was made to Mm -hmm. watch it again. It was a watch this. You'll like it. Mm -hmm. And it was a really, it was an old technicolor film. If it is Mm -hmm. indeed technicolor, it's certainly lovely color. and I thought, wow, this is great. I want to mm-hmm. watch more films like this. Hitchcock, I'll watch more Hitchcock films. So I did that. So with, with you having 2001 as that sort of gateway drug film that lets mm-hmm. you into everything else, and me having Hearts and Coronets and North by Northwest, mm-hmm. when you have these older films that you watch that help you get into art films, foreign films, black and white films, silent films, mm-hmm. You realize the importance of
1: just finding one film you can cling on to, yeah. True. I also had a gateway for Black and White, and it's very sweet because I, when I was a again, a neurotic child at like seven or eight, and like I loved like Doctor Who, you know, what the, I think I've t- probably told you this before. You know, what the second thing I really loved was the Beatles. So, like, you know, I love the music an awful lot to begin with i feel like uh, i think when i was like in year five we did like a module on well not a module whatever the year five version of doing a module is a class uh topic but well, we learned about the 60s i don't know if that's why i like the beatles so much or vice versa but then um i feel like since like 10 i've been like kind of obsessed with that but um, then it was, it was specifically the beatles though I and mean, like from like in the beatles i watched a hard day's night and by god if there's a black and white film you have to watch to get you into black and white films a hard day's night is not a bad place to start
0: well, there you go have you,
1: seen have you seen it i can't
0: remember having seen it but i feel like mm. i have oh it's absolutely it's it's
1: fantastic it's very it's, it's 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 properly funny which you wouldn't expect but it's really really funny <laughs>
0: Sam, you have a list of your favourite films. Would you like to read it for us?
1: I would like to read it. Let me get it up on my phone. Okay, so everyone always makes their top ten list. i like, how I've kind of done this is, like, I didn't want to, like, fake a top ten list. I've just put films on there that if I was going to make a top ten list, I definitely want to be on there. So I've got seven films officially on it and two films unofficially on it. Uh, the seven films are Annie Hall, uh, The Cat in the Hat, Clueless, Hiroshima and Monomore, uh, Inland Empire, Persona, and Rope. And then the two films that aren't officially on there, but very well could be on there, if I think about it more, or maybe re-watch these films, are The Holy Mountain, which is only by virtue of seeing it a few days ago. Um, I was very impressed by it, but I don't know if it has like longevity, to me liking it, uh, and The Man Who Fell to Earth, the David Bowie film. Uh, but no, those are my seven. You chose Cat in the Hat. I did. I, I love that film, and there's no level of irony to it. The Mike Myers one? The Mike Myers one, yeah. Amazing. No, I, okay. So there's a few things to it. One, the Mike Myers of that cat is deeply unsettling. Like the costume is deeply, deeply unsettling. Every time I see it, it 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 genuinely hits me in ways that very few things like hit me on an in an abject sort of way. So I like it because of that. But then also, I don't know if it's nostalgia or just general generally, but the jokes are insanely funny to me. Like you can tell me any line from that film, and I will burst out in hysterical laughter i like I I think I know nearly every line from that film like off the top of my head. Like you say a line to me from that film, and I'm like, yeah, I know it. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I won't I won't pull any any of them out now, but by God, and it's just surreal. It has like Frank, stop laughing. This is this is serious film talk. The, <laughs> the humour in it reminds me a bit of The Simpsons, where it's like the jokes just come at you so quickly and they're all just a bit surreal and a bit odd. you just kind of have to go with it and people watch the cat and the hat and they're like nah this is lowbrow and stupid and commercial trash but like if you need an argument for why the commercial can integrate surreal stuff into it then you know you can't go wrong with a cat and the hat so Bizarre though, I love it. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it.
0: Oh, I've seen it.
1: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) you what's your thought on it? Isn't there a joke in it
0: where they're (laughs) on a roller coaster and the kids, like, this is like a ride at an amusement park? The film stops and he goes, You mean like a Universal Studios?
1: It's like it, and then he and then he goes, ch ching, (laughs) and then I just. I like, what a crazy joke we are all thinking it but It's just insulting. Um and then there's a the bit I really love the bit where um there's a bit of the pinata and then they're having to disguise themselves and then he's like, Oh I know what I'll do, I'll disguise myself as a pinata and the little boy who looks like he's like terrifying looking like comes up to him with like a baseball bat <laughs> and like whacks him like in his private area like with a baseball bat. And then like this is a surreal bit. So he gets hit in his privates with a baseball bat. And then in a Bergman-esque move, we cut to a very cerebral shot of the cat in a beautiful it's a beau it's beautiful. A beautiful song is playing. It's a beautiful pastoral scene. It's like Beethoven six. It's very, it's very, it's beautiful. He's just swinging there and it feels like a Sunday morning. (laughs) (laughs) And then it just, it just cuts back to him and he's screaming. Who, who wrote that? (laughs) I think like it kind of works because like, why is like, the cat in the hat is nothing like this as a book. (laughs) Like, who, why would you do this? (laughs) And, like, every time I watch it, I think I must have seen it about 15 times. Like, not even as a child. Like, as an adult, I watch that film, like, every two or three months. (laughs) Sometimes with other people, sometimes by myself. And, like, I love it more and more every time. Every, I watch it now. Every joke hits.
0: Isn't there another joke where he has a, a car and it's like, this is the super hydro- hydraulic tedious transporter? And the kid's like, you yeah. mean, shit? and he's like, quick to the slow, quick to the slow, because he's got another car called the slow. It's like, oh.
1: Yeah. <laughs> there's one bit where there's like an underground rave that's just happening <laughs> for some reason. And they just like he just goes into it, and then they're all wearing cat and the hat hats for some reason, and he loses his hat there. Like you know, you just they just needed a reason for him to lose his hat. Like they were like it's important later on he doesn't have his hat, so he's just got to oh, lose it. How can we do that? <laughs> isn't there a like, shot? <laughs> Is there a shot in it where he's
0: at the, like the kid's house and there's a picture of their mom? and he picks up the <laughs> framed picture, opens it, and it folds out like a Playboy centerfold. And he's like, whoa! Uh-huh. And he's
1: and it's like, he's like, homina, homina, homina. <laughs> Who's this? And this'm like, our oh, mum. And he's like, awkward. No, there's another joke. That I oh. There's one bit where, I don't know why this is happening, but there's a there's a cooking show <laughs> And like, and and the cooking show is just two versions of Mike Myers as the Cat in the Hat talking to each other, and for some reason, one of like, it's not even like a parody of something. It's just for some reason, one of them is just Mike Myers doing his British accent. <laughs> 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 and then like, and then like, and then like, the, the, like the American Cat in the Hat is just like being classic American like, talk show, like, happy. And, for some reason, <laughs> the British one just, like, turns around and is just like, I'll get you, and I'll make it look like a bloody accident. <laughs> <It's> like, what? <laughs> it's legitimately one of the most unhinged films I've ever seen. I, I, I love it so much. I have no... Wait, do you know why Clueless is there as well? Go on! <laughs> again, I think I said this to you um, when we saw each other quite recently, but <laughs> there's a Slavoj Žižek quote where he's describing this one art film he saw and he was like, it's one of those nice intimate movies where it's about a mother and her son having an ancestral relationship, but <laughs> it's described as a friendly secret. <laughs> Clueless is a bit like that. For some reason, the main love story in Clueless is between a, a man and his stepsister, and there is no, but and there is nothing, no point is made of this, but all of Clueless is a bit like a weird '90s trance, where it's like you know, think of the '90s. What was going on in the '90s? Nothing. This is the ultimate end of history film, <laughs> like, you know, all the like, every single worry that all the characters have are so like. They're so stupid. Like, again, I think I said this to you when we were talking about this last, but there's this one bit where um, Reese Witherspoon's character is asked how to solve this global conflict. And then she's like, oh, well, it's reminds me of this pool party we (laughs) had. I couldn't invite everyone. I can't remember exactly what it is to describe it, of, of how she solves it. But every joke in it is just that kind of ironic. But it kind of just works like in post 9 11, post financial crash, post Trump era, where we know how good the 90s had it and how, like, how, how, you know, how that version of America was just hanging on by a delicate string before going into complete insanity. Like, Clueless just best represents it. But also, beautiful. Like, the colors in that film, excellent. And also, the music in that film, incredible. Like, if, you, if, if I want to describe 90s music to you, that's how I describe it. Clueless, best film about the 90s. What's the best film about post 9 11 America? I don't know. And what will be the Trump film? I don't know. What's the financial crash film? I don't know. But the 90s film, it's clueless.
0: I think a good argument can be made that the best film, the contender for the best film about the Trump era at the moment is probably Get Out.
1: See, but that's kind of like n- n- no, because in my mind, it's about Obama era America. That's a good point.
0: That's a good point. Yeah,
1: like I'm trying to think of one that's legitimately being influenced by Trump. Like you know, I feel like you could say, like, because it's very hard to make one just about Trump. Like no one's gonna make a good film just about Trump. But, you know, again, I feel like the best one to describe the phenomena is probably somewhere between the social network and hyper Well,
0: hypernormalization is is definitely the best film about Trump because it's a documentary, it kind of, you know. Yeah. You know.
1: But it's also just making so many wild points that you just wouldn't expect a film to make, you know.
0: And because it's Adam Curtis, it all seems reasonable. He just, he shows a <laughs> clip of two people dancing in the 70s and then uh. just keeps going, <laughs> but the system <laughs> had a different plan.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. All social network. I think social network really. I think the twenty tens film is the social network, and I will not be. My mind will not be changed on this. It's the social network. And I think
0: that about wraps it up, Sam. It has been absolutely lovely having you on the podcast today. Would you like to plug any of your social media accounts?
1: Oh my God, would I? Uh, I don't know. I feel like my Twitter and my Instagram are both pretty cool. Like, if you want, like, I feel like I'm I'm very happy with with both of them. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I tweet about all sorts. But if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Sam Atkinson underscore I O M I for igloo O for oh my god and M for Man, <laughs> it means Isle of Man, but I ran out of other ones. Uh, so that's my Twitter. Um, my uh Instagram uh, is S for Sam, <laughs> J for uh, 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 Jewel, uh, Atkinson, and then an underscore. They're both excellent, they're both worth your time. Sam, it's been lovely having you on here. It's been lovely being here. I'll I'll come back anytime. Brilliant. Well,
0: as always, I've been Frank Evans, the host of the Warwick Boar Film Podcast and the editor of the Boar Film Section. This has been (laughs) our episode on Art
1: House Cinema. Thank you for listening, and hopefully we'll have an episode this time next week. See you.